Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. I'm feeling a sense of calm descending upon the nation this morning as we get the very welcome news that coronavirus infections appear to be flattening out across Great Britain after weeks and weeks of watching those same rates accelerate to alarmingly high levels. Yesterday, Secretary of State for Health Matt Hancock once again gave an assured performance in the face of the usual negative questioning from the assembled media. He was able to address the care home scandal that we talked about earlier this week and confirmed that testing is now available for all care home staff that think they may have symptoms of COVID-19. Of course, it didn't stop Channel 4 from getting their reporter to basically say uh, to the Health uh, Secretary of State for Health, uh, are you sacrificing the old in order to keep the young alive? Charming, isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. This morning, we will talk some more about the supply of PPE with Dr Dominic Pimenta, who has launched a charity called Heroes to help provide everything from masks and gowns to lunches for those NHS workers on the front line. And as ever, we want to hear from you, the eyes and ears of the Independent Republic. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? And how are you feeling as well? 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be asking exactly why there is a charter plane coming into Stansted Airport today filled with Romanian nationals who are being imported to pick fruit. And we'll be telling you who the highest paid council chiefs are thanks to the Taxpayers Alliance. 0344 499 1000. Don't forget to prepare your children for our homeschooling feature today as well, where we will speak to hairdresser to the stars, Tatiana Karolina, uh, who will teach us how to cut our own hair without messing it up. If you have any questions, please do tweet them at Talk Radio and at IROMG. I'm getting to the point now where I'm thinking, if I don't cut my hair soon, uh, I'm literally going to start looking like Robinson Crusoe. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, one of the many things that goes on when this show is not on is that Twitter is 24-7 activated by all sorts of people, all sorts of trolls, all sorts of independent contractors, all sorts of people with anonymous accounts. I made a tweet, I put a tweet out on Sunday after watching the BBC Breakfast Show uh, because Dr Dominic Pimenta was being interviewed on there um, and the alacrity with which the BBC uh, presenters were trying to find out how bad the PPE situation was uh, sort of slightly astounded me. And there had been a massive narrative going around 
that the Tory government was somehow messing up the supply of PPE. And they asked Dr Dominic how the supply was and how he was doing. And he said, basically, where he was in his ICU unit, um, that everything was absolutely fine. It had never been an issue. Now, that kicked off a massive row. But let's talk to Dr Dominic Pimenta now, because we decided after, after a bit of uh, an initial spat on Twitter that we should basically talk to each other and work it all out. Dr Dominic, very good morning to you. Very good morning to you, Mike. Thanks very, very refreshing. No, very very nice of you to join us. And, um, I mean, let's get this out of the way at the top, really. I mean, basically, you were annoyed with me because I, you, you saw me as taking your words out of context. But but my, my context was really not about you. It was more about the media because I'd become a bit irritated about the media kind of trying to make out that this incredibly complex problem was being messed up massively by the government because they just didn't care. And that was really my, my point. But, 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 but please make yours. Yeah, I mean, I think you think you've hit the nail on the head in a way that it is an incredibly complex problem. I think uh, the media of everything has to be one thing or the other mm. is is very very tricky. Um, I think the question is: Is there enough PPE? And in short, the answer is no. Right. In, the long answer is going to be quite long, but thank you for letting me on and, and let's go through it. So, firstly, worldwide. There is not enough PPE. Right. And that's undoubt that is undoubtable. Um, we're in a pandemic. There's global demand. We've just passed two million cases. We can't really pretend that the supply chain is not severely impaired. As right. part of what we do in, in Heroes, we've been working to procure from abroad. So we're quite in-depth with what the supply chains in China are doing. One of our colleagues calculated that one patient in one ICU will need 30 sets. So that's a full set, visors, masks, everything. Right. Uh, of PP a day and for the duration of the pandemic for a single ICU that's probably about up to 9 million sets. So yeah. that gives you an idea It's of, kind uh, of, my, the numbers are mind-boggling really, aren't they? Exactly. So France just ordered 2 billion masks and that's probably a good start. Mm -hmm. This is going to go on for a long time. Right. So the first thing is there are certainly pockets of need um, in some places for example, and I, I, I stand by that statement where I work, we are very well protected but also I receive anecdotal requests and pleas please really for help from all sorts of care homes hospices gps we work with a group called um, the national equipment appeal database uh, who take uh, receipts from industry and they receive a massive database of um, appeals from mm. everywhere um, and there are dire pockets of need so what we've been doing is trying to augment that by looking at novel ways so i've looked we've looked at reusable uh, visors and we're actually producing them now in a 3D print hub, so we can make about 2,000 of those a day in London, and we plan to expand that. Also looking at novel ways of getting scrubs and gown donations made, looking at things like even reusing the actual respirator mask, because even if you use it once, you've doubled the stock. Yeah. I think we all have to take a very long view of this. Um, it's going to be a long campaign, and we start have thinking about the question, undoubtedly, is there is not enough, and what do we do about that? Um, and it will take all effort, government effort, public effort, industry effort. And part of what we're trying to do is, is be the interface there between the public and the clinicians as best we can sure. to get the stuff where it needs to go. And will it make a difference, um, as far as we are aware, if, if more testing can be done that, that means that some people, NHS workers specifically, uh, are immune or have had coronavirus and can therefore work without necessarily the need? Obviously, they would probably still need the protection, but, but they would be less at risk from catching something. Yeah, again, and this is quite interesting. The, we don't know anything about coronavirus. And mm. I, I'm, I, the more we find out, the less we seem to know. Mm. So somebody just reviewed the evidence, um, Prof Greenhow from the Oxford group, about do we know what level of protection we need in coronavirus? 
Um, and actually, the answer is the evidence is, is pretty weak. Um, we don't really know that you can stay immune. We haven't really demonstrated that. So mm. the problem is testing in and of itself, and actually for the virus as opposed to immunity, is extremely useful because it lets people know that they can come back to work so we can supplement the workforce and that makes things safer. It also means you can do a lot more in the way of controlling the pandemic, doing, you know, uh, releasing the lockdown maybe a little bit, but using mass testing as a sort of holding measure to make sure that you can control the virus and, and reduce the demand on mm. NHS capacity. Um, so, I, I, again, it's really difficult. And the problem with conversations and Twitter especially <laughs> is that you try to delineate what is incredibly complex into about, you know, yeah. 100 whatever it characters. So conversations like this are really great. And yeah, I, I think they are. And, and, and what we like to do on this show, and, and you know, um, uh, I, I hope most people would agree with it, is, is to have the sort of slightly more long-form conversation, a lot of television. I mean, your own, your own interview on the BBC was quite short, even though for them it was quite long, if you know what I mean. So, so we have a bit more time to sort of elaborate on these things because one of, the, I, one of the things I was amazed at on Twitter was the number of people who then got involved, you know, and of course it was terribly um, polemicised and it was terribly sort of, you know, polarised as well. Um, but in, in, a, in a funny sort of way, I always try and take positives out of things. And, and even if you feel I've been a bit of a, an idiot or whatever it is, that's fine, because sometimes I am a bit of an idiot. Um, the fact is that many, many more people were talking about this and many more people were getting it, because what I was really astounded by was the media's kind of real hard line on it, talking to people last week and saying, are oh, you going to apologise for not providing PPE? And as you've just explained, you know, this is probably something for which there will always be a shortage. Yep. I mean, the the long view, again, will be, I'm sure we'll look back and, 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 and look at government decisions and look at procurement decisions and logistics decisions, and there'll be a lot of lessons to learn here. But similarly, this is a situation that has never, there's been none comparable in human history. Right. So there is, you know, there's always going to be some criticism. And I think what the positive from that is that, well, we've identified a problem and what are you going to do about it? So one of the things that I'm really keen that we try to do is if you're in industry and you have PPE, please email the National Equipment Appeal Database, which is donate at the nead.co.uk, so we can get stuff from industry and repurpose it for clinicians. And similarly, you know, supporting what we're doing, we're building, we're trying to innovate and trying to do what we can right now, because that is the most pressing need. Yes. I saw, um, I think, did I did I not, a tweet from you saying that you'd managed to find a, a mechanism by which you could 3D print visors. Yeah, so that's that's my uh, sort of quite geeky interest at the moment. Yeah. So what, what we're doing is um, there's uh, another a couple of groups that we work with in a wider organisation called Shield, um, and in that is manufacturers, industry experts, uh, lots of super qualified 3D printing people, um, and there's lots of designs. So there's a couple of designs from the US, but that's the thing about a global internet connection, right? So everybody's facing the same problem and trying to share novel solutions right. to it. Would it help, for example, if people who had 3D printers um, could, say, take a file from you and just print stuff? Yeah, I mean, that is well established. So there's a couple of groups who are doing that already mm. in, ne in networks. That has, that ha I mean, that, that's a great sort of uh, like a wartime effort kind of thing. And sure. certainly every little helps, in my opinion. Okay. Well, we, we've taken the tack to be a bit more efficient with the money that we raise. We buy materials in stock, uh, sorry, in bulk, and we deliver to a single place. And there, so we've got like what we call a print farm, which I thought was quite a nice term. That is a nice um, term. We've got, yeah. It, we've took got, me, it took me about three or four times of having explained to me what a 3D printer actually did, to be honest, because I, I think being called a printer is what confuses everybody. 
Yeah, it's a bit strange. Essentially, it just layers very tiny amounts of plastic in sequential layers. Yeah. It's like a 3D shape. I mean, right. that's what it is. Right. Um, it's very cool. There's some footage, I think, on my Twitter feed that you can have a look at what we're doing. It's about 60 printers. They can make about 2,000 headbands a day. So right. It's pretty good so far. Okay. And just from your own personal experience, we don't want to uh, obviously uh, locate you or tell anyone where you are, but what is it like for you day to day in terms of uh, what we're seeing in the papers this morning, that the feeling is that the, that the infection rates may be flattening? I presume that doesn't make it any less busy for you. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we're sort of in the thick of it, so it's hard to take that holistic view. Um, it, it's a bit surreal, to be honest. We've changed. Like, I, I'm not an intensive care doctor. I'm a cardiology registrar. I work in intensive care currently. Yeah. We only have a single uh, single disease right now, which is, again, very strange. Um, we're only treating coronavirus. Um, I think what I, and what I have to say is the actual days at work these days are probably, I mean, they're hard, no doubt. But actually, the days off, I have to say, are probably the harder days, mm. unless you can fill your time doing something productive, which is part of the reason that we've been doing, you know, this, this charity. And, and it's another full-time job, so it certainly keeps me somewhat out of the papers. Somewhat <laughs> off Twitter, right. maybe not enough off Twitter. Yeah, no, that's good. And also, your Heroes charity is not only for PPE, is it? Because you're also delivering food to people too. Oh, no. So the, the Heroes remit is the mission to look after the well-being and uh, welfare of NHS workers in the, in the round, in the whole. So physical health, mental health. We do, uh, we're, looking, we're hopefully going to launch a childcare service this week, a grant service for hardship funds. We work with lots of partners, uh, everything from Selfridges, delivering Easter eggs, to celebrity chefs, delivering hot food. Um, basically, the idea is if anything makes your life easier right now as an NHS worker, we want to do that. Um, I'm very heavily involved in the procurement side, but the other directors and, and quite a large and completely volunteering, very inspiring team um, are delivering all sorts of things across the board and all over the country as well. And not just to NHS workers, we're looking at you know, private hospices, GPs, care workers, anybody who's at the front line is somebody that we want to connect with and help. OK. I've got a question here from somebody on Twitter, funnily enough, from Pete. He says, could you ask why visors are being used only once? Surely they could be cleaned, disinfected, following use and ready for the next day. I mean, before you answer that, it seems as though there are obviously some areas of the NHS where you can reuse stuff, but in the COVID-19 wards, presumably you can't. That's a great question. And actually, that is, from my point of view, the key question here, mm. because ultimately supply is not going to reach demand because we're in a global pandemic. Right. So we, start have, we have to start being really clever with what we do. Certainly from our point of view, we are trying to use stuff that could be infected, uh, so could be disinfected. Um, and that certainly is the practice locally in lots of places, especially for stuff like eyewear, like visors. Um, so my focus really, as a grassroots organisation, we can't hope to meet the demand of 9 million sets for a single unit, for example. That's just not feasible. But what we could do is we could try to provide stuff that people could, you know, within their own risk and their own local infection protocol, obviously, um, consider reusing. And if we don't start to look at those sort of options, then I think we're going to struggle in the long term because ultimately, you know, we need to reuse the supply. There's lots of novel methods out there. I looked at, I know I put one of the FFP masks in an oven just to see what would happen and uh -huh. it didn't seem to have any, um, any detriment. Right. And we need that sort of very quick, rigorous research to say, well, actually, is this viable? Can we use this safely? And if we can, get on with it ASAP.
Right. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Dominic, and thank you very much for everything you're doing because uh, we all know that tonight we'll be back out on the street clapping uh, you and your colleagues for, for, yeah. the, for the great work that you are doing. Um, and I think it's fantastic that you came on and, and I'm glad that we sorted out the problem and, and uh, um, you know, a pleasure to have you on any time. No, it's great. Thanks very much, Mike. Uh, sorry, before I let you go, just tell people where they can find your, uh, your uh, charity. Yeah, sure. So our, our, we're on helpthemhelpus.co.uk and the Shield Project is on shieldproject.org. Brilliant stuff. Dr. Dominic Pimenta, uh, Heroes is the name of the charity, uh, designed to help anybody who's in the NHS. And talking of that, uh, of course, Captain Tom Moore, uh, raising more than £12 million uh, right now, uh, walking around his own garden at the age of 99. Absolutely extraordinary man. I have to give him the big hats off today uh, because he is doing something quite remarkable. But we need to hear from you, who are also doing some quite remarkable things out there, because many of you are delivering goods around the country. Many of you are driving taxis, helping people to get get to work, helping people to buy food, helping people to do all manner of things. We want to hear from you as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll take your calls next on Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Uh, don't forget, of course, you can find a podcast for this show every single day. Uh, it goes out in the afternoons. And you can also, of course, uh, find Plank of the Week, which is out there uh, in podcast form now as well, in exactly the same place as you find the podcast for this show. It's on iTunes, it's on Acast, it's on Spotify, it's on all the other platforms that you would expect to find your podcasts on. Now, occasionally, there are other stories to talk about as well as the coronavirus. And because we are feeling relatively kind today and in a relatively good mood. We thought uh, we would annoy everybody by telling you what the Taxpayers Alliance have just revealed, which is that 2,667 council staff received more than £100,000 a year in crushing, uh, despite the crushing council tax rises that have been going on, right? There's people getting paid an absolute and utter fortune uh, working for local councils around this country. And what Taxpayers Alliance have done is put together a town hall rich list for 2020. Let's talk to Harry Fone, uh, who's campaign manager uh, at the Taxpayers Alliance. Harry, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank you for having me on. Not at all. This is quite an extraordinary list. I mean, it's quite right to call it the town hall rich list because these people are extraordinarily rich, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you've got the situation at the moment. The average council tax, you know, average bandy council tax in England is £1,817. You know, that's £150 a month. You know, we're seeing inflation-busting council tax rises every year. Puts a huge strain on household finances. And then you find out that, you know, your chief executive is on a salary higher than the prime minister. It doesn't exactly fill you with hope, you know, especially as, you know, I've been on before to discuss the many ways that councils, you know, are wasting money. So our list is all about accountability. It's letting people People have a look at the list, seeing what uh, chief execs at their council are earning, and then people can say, well, are we getting value for money or not? Well, I think in most cases you'd have to say absolutely not. I mean, Essex County Council has the most employees receiving remuneration in excess of £100,000, 35 of them. Glasgow City Council uh, has the largest number in earning more than 150000 at 12, um, and bonuses and performance-related pay as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some quite frankly staggering figures. I mean, for example... Uh, the Chief Officer for Health and Social Care Integration at North Lanarkshire, um, she got £615,000 this year. Um, it had a base salary of 146000 That was then uh, topped up with compensation for loss of office of £120,000. But the most staggering thing is, got a pension contribution of £350,000. Now, there's not many people in the private sector who'd be lucky to get that sort of thing. I mean, 600000 um, quid. I mean, you'd think she was working for the BBC. 
<laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 there's legitimate questions to be asked about this. You know, someone said to me yesterday, are they worth this? And I, the, the only way I can really justify it is if, you know, if the council executives could turn around to their taxpayers and say, look, we've eradicated all wasteful spending, we're providing the best services possible, we've filled all the potholes, you've got great social care, then they might have a case for that. But I suspect many people listening, uh, you know, and we've discussed this before from, you know, my hometown of Milton Keynes to places like Shropshire where they hired a pothole expert, you know, Brighton had a Brexit communications officer. In many cases, they have not eradicated all wasteful spending. No, exactly right. And funnily enough, we were talking about councils selling off care homes because there was once upon a time the situation where care homes were all kind of run and operated by the local council. But this was another thing that they did in order to prop up all of the, the money that they need to pay themselves with and their pensions was they sold them all off to private profiteers. And so now we're in a situation where the social care business is completely out of control and it's being operated by you know big companies and millionaires who are basically you know siphoning money out of the system like nobody's business, charging people up to 1,500 quid a week, you know, to be looked after, uh, and who are now begging the government for money so that they can get their own sort of protective uh, equipment. Yeah, and, and you're quite right. I mean, social care is in a bit of a mess in this country. We've got, you know, huge billions of pounds of shortfalls. I mean, we've actually done a lot of research on this, and we found that, you know, there are ways that money can be saved to, to make up for these shortfalls. Um, you know, but it, it, unfortunately, it's not happening. Yet. Um, but this is the thing, you know, as you say, you know, you're, you're paying huge amounts of council tax every year, and that's just a band D price. I mean, yeah. God forbid if you're band E, band F, etc. Uh, you know, you're paying these huge amounts of council tax, and you're just not getting the services. And, it's, you know, especially at a time... You know, the coronavirus, where you know those frontline you know, health services are so important, we need to make sure that every penny is getting to the frontline. And I think what our rich list shows is that that isn't happening. It's it's you know it's it's handing golden pay packets to um, council yeah. bureaucrats. And I've always said, and people look at me incredulously, that something like seventy-five percent of the money that we pay in council tax goes to the salaries and the pensions of all the people working for the council. Yeah, I mean, the, the pensions are um, are a bit of a ticking time bomb. We've mm. done, again, we've done a lot of research on public sector pensions, and they are far more generous than you will get in the private sector. Um, I, I forget the ratio, but it's, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty staggering. And as I say, you know, I've got the figures in front of me here. You know, you, see, you look at some of these figures going in, into the pension pots. You know, it's not uncommon to see £200,000 going, £190,000 going in every year. Right. It, 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 it's unsustainable, quite frankly. Well, many, um, many of your uh, sort of highlights for me are, are quite remarkable. For example, uh, the local authority with the most employees who receive remuneration, I can't say remuneration for some reason, uh, in excess of £100,000 in the North West were Liverpool and Cheshire West and Cheshire. But the biggest remuneration package in this region was received by Sefton's Head of Highways and Public Protection, 372,840 quid. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, it's, are, are they actually... I mean, they must be doing a hell of a job to be earning this money. Ultimately, you should be paying people a salary that, that is equal to their worth and their, their job performance. But, you know, it's, I, you know, I was looking at um, some of the figures earlier. You know, we, we've talked before about... Remember Milton Keynes Council put moss on the walls? Yes. Um, so they've got 11 people being paid over £100,000. And the corporate director of Place, I don't know what that means either, mm. um, they got £156,000. Remember Shropshire with their pothole expert? Um, they've got eight people in their council earning over one hundred k. The chief exec's on £161,000. You know, That's it, amazing. It, it, but, I mean, what even yeah. is a head of highways and public protection? What does that even mean? I mean exactly. I mean, it, 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 some of these titles, you know, are quite frankly... 
uh, crazy. I mean, you've got North Lanarkshire, the, the lady who was on 650, it's Chief Officer for Health and Social Care Integration. I mean, it's not Chief Officer for Health and Social Care, it's the integration part of it, which suggests he's not sort of not doing the full job, as it were. Yeah, right. Um, and what about know, this and, guy and, in Rhonda? Um, 238,000 for loss of office paid to the uh, uh, the departing director of regeneration and planning. Now, I, bet, I presume that this person who was departing is departing just to do another job in the same council. It, it, potentially. I mean, it, it, this is exactly why we've called for a cap of £95,000 on these sort of exit payments. And you may say that's too generous, but it would certainly be a step in the right direction. And indeed, the government have been trying to bring this legislation in for some time now, but unfortunately... Um, it doesn't seem to have happened. In some cases, there was a chap in, uh, I believe it was West Sussex Council, uh, Nathan Elvery is his name. Um, and he got a payout, and this, this is, this, he wasn't moving to another job in the same council or anything like that. He got a lot of office compensation about in excess of £200,000. Um, and if, if you look, if you Google his name, you'll see he didn't exactly have the best performance while he was there. Um, <laughs> well, you know, that's the is, trouble. I mean, tax, but... so many of these individuals who do these very sort of highly paid jobs don't appear to have any scrutiny put upon them at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's it, there's a sort of suggestion, you know, that there's a lot of sort of jobs for the boys stuff, and uh, you know, there's a lot of sort of uh, it's, it's who you know you sort of get these jobs, and yeah, as I say, there may well be some people who justify these salaries. If, as I say, they eradicated all the waste of spending, we've got great public services, then I don't necessarily have a problem with them earning high amounts of money if their local residents are happy. I should say, I should give councils some credit. Some of them now are sharing chief executives across two councils. Right. So you're splitting the cost, and, and it's a, you know because a lot of what they do, there's huge crossover. You know, in a lot of cases, it's just you know, there's, there's so much similarity that it's just changing the letterhead on the paper, basically. Exactly. So councils who do that should definitely, uh, you know, be recognised for doing that. But these other ones paying these ridiculously high salaries, I think they need to uh, have a, a good look at mm. themselves in the mirror and remember that they represent taxpayers. But of course, their argument is always the same because I had that when I was working up in Edinburgh. Uh, I used to regularly have sort of set twos with Edinburgh City Council, and their chief executive. Was was on something like £500,000 a year at that time, which was about 20 years ago, right? Actually, no, 10 years ago. And um, it was quite remarkable because they would say, well, the point is you have to pay people commensurate with the same job in the private sector. And they don't base that on anything other than the budget that they have. And the only reason they've got such a massive budget is because of all the taxpayers' money that they've got and all the people that technically they're supposed to be looking after. So say they've got a billion-pound budget to run. On that basis, they say we are the same as something like, you know, um, you know, I don't know, Procter, Procter and Gamble, or you know, one of the big, uh, you know, Siemens or some big massive multinational corporation. But they're clearly not, and they couldn't run one of those corporations, so they shouldn't be paid anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, the, the luxury they have is that they've got a virtually guaranteed income from the year. No business anywhere has a guaranteed income. No. They can't say for definite that they're going to get a billion pounds in, especially, you know, in the, in the sort of current crisis. I mean, I, I think you mentioned, talking of the, the Scottish Council, I think you mentioned Glasgow in your yeah. intro there. They've got more people over 150,000 yes. than anyone else. It's, it's a very interesting council and, you know, in no way can they claim that they are, uh, they've eradicated all wasteful spending. Because a couple of interesting things about them. The Someone gifted a Rolls-Royce to the council. We don't know who it was. Uh, it was worth about 230 grand. But also, a um, lady who was the former Lord Provost, she spent £8,000 of taxpayers' money on shoes and clothes. Yes, I remember that um, story, yeah. All the while the chief executive is being paid £215,000. Yes. You know, it's, 
if, 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 as you say, if it was a private company and, you know, you've got shareholders, the shareholders can vote to get rid of these people. Well, or Gla- yeah. somebody could do that. It's I, I, not I know, that I, easy at a local council. I know quite a bit about Glasgow City Council and it's a very interesting story, I can tell you that. And I, we'll have a drink one day and I'll explore, I'll explain quite a lot of it to you. Glasgow basically runs like Sicily. That's what it's like. But uh, we'll talk <laughs> okay. more another time. Harry, thanks very much indeed. Harry Phone, uh, grassroots campaign manager at the Taxpayers Alliance. Absolutely staggering. If that hasn't made your blood boil, I don't know what will. Imagine getting paid 238 grand just because you don't have the job that you used to have that was worth 238 grand. So basically you get a year's salary as a payoff. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Uh, this is Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are live streaming on YouTube, so if you're not there yet, go and join the throngs who are watching us as well as listening to us. Subscribe to it as well. Like it as well. uh, And we will all be uh, in very good shape. Here on Talk Radio, we've teamed up with the Malta Tourism Authority to say thank you to our NHS heroes for all those working tirelessly on the front line, risking their own safety to ensure that they can provide the best possible care to everyone in need. We want to reward them when the time is right with an incredible trip for two to the stunning Maltese Islands. We need you to nominate your NHS hero and one lucky winner will be able to take up their well-deserved rest with a luxurious three-night break to Malta. There they can enjoy the crystal clear waters, explore the historical sites and discover the island's culture. So if you know a National Health Service doctor, nurse, healthcare worker or support staff who is doing amazing work at this time, we want to hear it. Head online to the Talk Radio competitions page at talkradio.co.uk forward slash competitions and get your nominations in now. Now, uh, let's go to the calls because we've got lots of you who want to talk to me and lots of you have got things to say. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Let's talk to Kate, who's in uh, Chelmsford. Hello, Kate. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Mike. Good. I love your show. Thank you very much indeed. Welcome. Thank you. What would you like um, to say? Well, what I'd like to say is fruit picking. Yes. Um, 
I'm self-employed the last 20 years right. as a painter and decorator, but recently uh, unemployed because of the current situation, like many others. Mm. Um, and I was sort of thinking, right, you know, what further income can I bring in? Ah, oh, fruit picking. I love the outdoors. I'm a keen gardener. Okay. But if somebody could direct me to a website where I could apply for a fruit-picking job yes. locally, that would be fantastic. Well, I think, I think our last guest... research, I can't find them. I think he said Feed the Nation was the name of it, wasn't it? Mark Bridgman said. I'm, I'll, I'll try and double-check that. I think he said it was called Feed the Nation. If you put Feed the Nation into Google... Um, I have had a look at that, Mike. OK. And, and, and does that work? I didn't actually come up with much. Oh, really? Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me try. Now, I, I've sort of looked, you know, I've uh, done direct searches on, you know, farms locally or looked for agencies that employ fruit pickers. Right. And I'm not coming up with anything. Oh, here, here it is. It's Concordia is what you need. So Concordia Volunteers it is. OK. C-O-N-C-O-R-D-I-A, concordiavolunteers.org.uk slash uh, forward slash feed the nation. OK, I'll have a look. And I'll then, give it a go. And then I think you can find a volunteer position on there. OK. Let us know how you get on, Kate. I will, do. I'll be straight back to okay, you. OK, thank you very much indeed. Well done. There you go. You see, we're already making jobs for people available. Let's talk to Mark. Oh, sorry, Martin is in Stratford-upon-Even. Martin, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Oh. I'm a first-time caller. Welcome. Um, I actually chair an NHS trust in the Midlands. Do you? OK. How's... We're not an acute trust, so we, do, we are in community services and mental health. OK. Um, we're, we're keeping our head above water. Well I done. Very regular briefs and, uh, and all the rest. But I, I really want to talk to you about the media treatment of yes. the coronavirus. Yes, please do. Because most of my working life, I spent working in the media. Okay. Um, I worked for the Mirror Group. I worked for the Daily Mail and General Trust. Uh, okay. But always in regional newspapers in Northern Ireland, right. um, in Wales, and in England. So, like Northcliffe newspapers in Trinity and all that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I was I was the managing director of the Coventry Evening Telegraph, the South Wales Evening Post, okay. and also in the southwest of England. Right. And I I wasn't a journalist. I was a, a manager, but I had enormous respect for the journalists we we employed. You were you were the sort of person that I used to have regular rows with. <laughs> well, I I didn't row with you, you guys. I actually I used to we we were expected to increase our profits, and I had a simple policy that half of it we we tucked on the bottom line, and the other half went to editorial. Yes. So we could have more staff and more stories mm. and do a better job for our local communities. And I think we did... I think we've been rather murdered by the, by the internet, particularly by the BBC. Oh, totally, yeah. I totally agree with that. that. The BBC, and this is one of the arguments I make all the time, local BBC radio has killed local newspapers. Yeah, and it, it, it's awful. It, and, and, you know, that's funded by the taxpayer. Yeah. I think it's quite disgraceful, It is. Personally. Yeah, it is. But... But looking at the moment, I, I had the, the unpleasant, unedifying experience this morning of listening to Piers Morgan oh, yes. on with Matt Hancock. Mm. Um, I, the other a few days ago, he had uh, an interview, well, if you could call it an interview, uh, with, with the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Um, both of these amounted to attempts to bully. Yeah. They, they were harassing. It, they never gave, he never gave anybody the opportunity to answer a question. Matt Hancock did push back this morning. I was very happy to see that he did. Yeah. Um, because, frankly, even if you'd say, well, it wasn't a great style of interviewing, 
it was just overtly discourteous yes. by the way they're treating people. Mm. Now, I don't get that. I can remember, I'm giving my age away now, but I can remember people like Robin Day, John Cole, yes. uh, people who were strong interviewers. They did ask probing questions, but they did so with a considerable degree of politeness. Yes. Um, what, I, what, I, what I'm hoping is the case, because I know Piers pretty well, um, and I have a great deal of respect for him o overall. However, what I would say is that what I'm hoping for is that he's doing this because he thinks he needs to, rather than because the government for a long time uh, would not put any ministers up for uh, interview on GMB and particularly wouldn't put up Boris Johnson. No, well, I, I could understand why, why they wouldn't. I'm not absolutely convinced. I mean, I've met Piers Morgan most yeah. of my time with the Mirror Group, you know, once right. or twice um, he was involved in, in meetings and things that I attended mm. in Canary Wharf. Right. But, you know, I, I, the, the impression I get is that, and this is if, if I'm trying to look at a layperson at the moment, yeah. that Piers Morgan really ought to replace our chief scientific advisor and our chief medical officer <laughs> because he does know a lot more about what's going yes. on than they do. Yeah, but does he so, know more than Robert Peston, though, Martin? That would be my question. Uh, well, I'm, I can see that possibly Piers and Robin Peston could be the people who stand either side of the Prime Minister or the Secretary of State at the... Yeah. Uh, at the because it's just, it's just horrible. As for the questions that are asked at the uh, press conference, most of them, occasionally you get a reasonably sensible one, but most of them are absolutely crass. Yes, they really are. Well, I was astonished yesterday, Alex Thompson, you know, who I also know a little bit, and he's not a bad guy, but basically asked Matt Hancock, the Secretary of State for Health of this country, are you sacrificing old people so that the young people can stay alive? I mean, what a ridiculous yeah. question. Well, it, it is a ludicrous question, and I, I, I think they should think a bit more. Um, you know what I think they should do, and I would do if there were any reasonably good, uh, which, I, which I know they still exist out there, I would rotate this, pre this press conference and put get rid of the lobby journalists altogether and actually put regional journalists in uh, who work in places like Manchester and Liverpool and Glasgow and Leeds and Devon and Exeter, you know, places like that, and get them to ask specific questions. Because I always make the point, Martin, that it's an opportunity for information. And if yes. journalists are not gaining any information from the question, then it's not the right question. Right, we could write down the questions before we even have the press conference. Yeah, absolutely. Know it's going to be PPE, it's going to be not enough testing, look at Germany, how many tests they've done. It's a boring, repeating... Well, you notice as well that now that they've worked out that actually they're wrong about the government not supplying enough PPE, they've now moved on to the care homes because that's an easier target because well, the government hasn't... Well, you haven't supplied it over there. And once they find that that's been sorted out, they'll move on to another target that the government's not doing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's, it's a sad day. And, and to me, the, the, it's the quality of journalism seems to have declined. And I, I, I feel really sad about it. I think your idea about letting the regional journalists... Let, let's have journalists from the Scotsman, the Western Mail in Cardiff, yes. uh, you know, the, the, the Liverpool Echoes. The, these are respected newspapers in their local communities. And let's hear some local stories. And yes. Let's hear some local... I think that's a brilliant idea. Yes, I think it's absolutely what we should be doing. Martin, it's delightful to talk to you. It may well be that we've met, you know, because I was working at the Mirror at the same time Piers was, so um you never know i was running the welsh mirror um uh, when you maybe when we, we were in uh, south wales well i was actually managing director of mirror group ireland based uh, in belfast oh well so you must know craig then i know craig mckenzie very very well yeah <laughs> he's one of my I, oldest I, friends 
I did have one or, one or two arguments with Craig, but overall, he, he actually did a fantastic job there for the Mirror. Right, um, he did. Well, he's probably I, listening, so um, he, I'll, I'll, I'll tell him you're on if, he, if he's not. And send him my very best wishes. I will. Martin, thank you very much indeed. What a very small world. Fantastic stuff. Great call as well from Martin. First time caller uh, to this station. You could be one as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here, of course, on Talk Radio. Uh, we've got lots more to do, uh, only just about 25 minutes to do it in, so if you want to make a call and get through, uh, please do it now, 0344 499 1000. We're going to taste a little bit of wine uh, coming up, but uh, as of right now, we are going to go homeschooling, because that is what we do every day at 12.30, and today, I'm delighted to say, I'm going to do something which I think not only parents will find interesting, but children might find interesting as well. Let's talk to Tatiana Karolina, uh, who is a stylist to the stars, I'm going to say. Tatiana, very good afternoon to you. Hello, good afternoon. Thank you. Have I, made, have I pronounced your name correctly? I hope so. That's absolutely correct. Oh, brilliant. OK. Now, you've apparently worked with Ariana Grande, Emma Stone, Laura Whitmore, Stacey Solomon. That's quite a, uh, quite a role call of honour. Yes, 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 I did, I do. <laughs> and, and so, I mean... The problem we have at the moment, obviously, is that people are uh, stuck in their, in their houses, whether they're in a house or a flat. Um, they're not able to go out. All of the hairdressers, of course, have shut down. We've actually spoken to one or two hairdressers at the beginning of this a few weeks ago who were worried that, you know, they basically couldn't make any money because they can't open the salon. And it's really hard to... to you're not even really supposed to go to anybody's house. So, I mean, basically, um, what is it that is the key to cutting your own hair, if you can do it? Well, you know, first of all, you need some tools. And, you know, kitchen scissors are not going to be able to do the job, no. I'm afraid. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's actually an interesting uh, question because people normally will have to wait months before getting a haircut right. styled, you know. But now everyone suddenly needs to manage their hair while under lockdown because right. we, can't, we can't go to the hairdressers, so we, we want it even more, obviously. Yes. Um, um, I would say, you know, if, if you absolutely need... To, to cut your own hair, I will um, explain step, step by step. Yes. That's the easiest, probably, uh, way to do it. Uh, but alternatively, I would just advise to, you know, to let your hair breathe a bit and do a deep conditioning treatment and, you know, let your hair just be, um, you know, uh, just let it be. Yeah. Uh, do scalp cleansing, you know, deep conditioning uh, and leave all the styling products um, just get, get let your hair recover. But if you if you do need to get rid of split ends, or if it's a men's haircut as well, which is slightly different from the ladies, uh, you need a good pair of scissors and any comb. I would say like a tail comb or any uh, any comb brush right. um, you have at home. Okay, because so, I, I was once told by a hairdresser that it's actually better for your hair if you don't wash it every day. Is that right? Definitely, it's really good time right now. Um, no product, um, no washing for two, three days, uh, because a lot of, I know a lot of women, my clients, um, tend to wash their hair every day, and it's, it's, it's really bad, to be honest, you know, yeah. because we over-drying the hair, and then the scalp thinks, oh, you know, it's, it's dry, it doesn't have any oils, right. it starts producing more oil. So mm. we're actually locking ourselves in a vicious circle of constantly, you know, washing the hair, and we don't need to do that. Right. Well, you see, my, my particular problem is that I, my hair was 
I, I don't keep it particularly short to begin with, and because I live stream this show, I have to look sort of halfway presentable because it's on YouTube. Um, but if I don't put anything in it, my hair literally sort of looks like a scarecrow's hair. Right. Well, you're in a particular situation, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're very, you're very lucky, I would say, because right now I would love to be at work, and I would I know. probably love to style my hair as well every day. <laughs> I know, absolutely right. So if you if you manage to get some uh, proper hair cutting scissors, how yes. what can you can you walk us through sort of roughly what you should do? Yep, absolutely. So uh, we need to get our hair straight uh, and smooth, um, tangle free for maximum control. That's that's the first thing. Um, you can cut your hair either wet or dry, but you have to remember if you're cutting it on the wet and because the hair is very elastic when it's wet, mm. when you're stretching it, you have to remember when the hair dries, it will be at least two inches shorter. Okay. So if your hair is long, longish and you don't want to cut too much, um, either cut it on dry to be sure that you're not cutting too much or right. try, you know, try to remember that cut just a little bit. So, you know, you don't, you don't end up with a um, bad haircut while okay. going to the park. Right. Um, so if your hair is curly, uh, again, you know, be careful because it jumps up, it bounces up, and it's way shorter after the cut. Okay. Um, you have to keep your natural part in place so the hair is normally where it, and you create two front sections on each side of the head. So, right. you know, Basically, if you draw the line from the top of your head to the ear, um, down to the ear, that will be one section, and you put it in the front, okay. and the, the other section is on the opposite side, and the back is going to be our third section. Okay. And uh, basically, slide down the section with your first and middle finger and keep a firm grip, um, and see where you want the overall length to right. fall. And you should do this in front, obviously, in front of a mirror, presumably, right? Definitely, definitely in front of the mirror. I mean, if someone can help you with cutting your hair, that's great. If not, then a nice, uh, a, a good big mirror with good lighting as well. Right. Um, um, it's, it's important. Okay. Um, basically, once you do the guideline, uh, which is a tiny little sneak first, and you follow this guideline and cut on the front and um, cut the other side, I would say cut a little bit first, and then if you need to cut more, then do it as a second round. Yes. Um, and um, the way hairdressers normally match, so, so to see how um, the cut is done, is they basically bring the two pieces from each side forward and see if the pieces are equal length. Yes, and if they normally they put it like through their fingers, don't they? Yes, and exactly. should, should we do that as well? Absolutely, whatever works for you uh, for you better. Yeah. Um, because it's not going to be hundred percent salon haircut, unfortunately. Right. Um, no, in my case, probably not even 10%. <laughs> you can try. <laughs> um, and basically continuing uh, the, same, um, the same from the back. Right. But in the back, you need to split your, um, your back section in two and bring it forward. So you have exactly the same um, length on each side. So back right. splits in two, you bring it forward okay. and you're cutting it there. Um, as well, but the, the scissors are very important, and obviously um, the way you're holding your hands, your head, you know, you have to remember that you have to look forward, stand forward, you know, sit in front of the mirror without yeah. slouching or leaning to one side, you know, because if you are tilting your head to one shoulder, the cut is going to be wonky, I'm afraid. Yes. So yeah. always straight, looking straight, and trying not to move your head while just moving scissors and your Okay. Well, this is great advice. I have to say, I've got a question for you from Tom, who's tweeted me. He says, Mike, can you ask your hairstylist guest, how can I dreadlock my hair? 
Is that easy to do or not? To be honest, I, uh, I'm so sorry, Tom, I'm not an expert in dreadlocks in particular. Right. Um, but um, I know it's, it's a process which is a little bit more complicating than just snipping the hair. Because right. the, back, the back of your head, the dreadlocks, is something you need to do from the roots. You, you need to kind of dread right. from the roots. Yes. And it's really, really difficult to do from the back of your head. Yes, I would um, imagine so. So you only do the front half, which doesn't look very good. Exactly. Yeah. The other question I've got from, from quite a few people, both men and women, uh, is what about the, um, um, the colouring aspect? Because a lot of people are worried that, you know, they need to get their hair coloured, basically, because it's, the roots are starting to show. Um, but they don't know how to, to do it for themselves, particularly the back of the head. Um, so there is there is a big no no uh, about box colors. Um, with hairstylists, they hair colorists they do not like box colors because they um, never know how the color is going to come out. Right. And, uh, and the colors are so strong that uh, you know if you mess up with that, then it's very difficult to color correct afterwards. Right. Which ultimately, our hairstylists, hair colorists will have to do. Right. Um, but there are a lot of alternatives nowadays, actually. Um, they're, they're basically uh, a root touch-up product. I know that L'Oreal has got a couple and a couple other companies. Uh -huh. So it's basically like a, a powder-up um, brush. Okay. You load it with a powder and you press on the root. You press on the areas where uh, you need to cover uh, your grays, let's say. And um, it lasts to the next wash. It's not permanent. It's something to kind of just... Uh, just get you by. Exactly. Make right. up, uh, you know. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, I know people um, who have who've tried to colour their own hair and just got it massively wrong. And then uh, they've, yeah. they've, they've ended up having to go back to the, uh, to the salon to, to get it corrected. Because it's a complicated thing. Because I know women who go yeah. and they have to go and get the colour test before they can exactly. even go and get it coloured the second time, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It could, it could cause a massive allergy right now. And... You know, we just trying to avoid all the hospitals yes. as much as possible at the moment. So yeah. let's just stick to maybe a, um, a very um, easy option. Okay. Well, listen, that's been very helpful, Tatiana. Thank you very much indeed. And I hope you get to go back to work pretty soon. Um, you know, let's hope everybody gets to go back to work pretty soon so that we can all make some more money. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, great. Tatiana, Carolina, thank you. Carolina, rather. Thank you very much indeed. So um, you basically know what to do now, right? So if you, do, if you want to have a go at it, I think you should. Make sure you've got the right equipment, the right scissors, get a comb, right? And if you need to cut your hair, do it. But if you do it, please do send me a picture and, and post it on Twitter. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 